Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Okay, so today marks the 21st anniversary of 9-11. If you're over the age of 25, you probably remember where you were, what you were doing. You probably remember how that felt. Remember that feeling? Like it, it's like a, a blanket came over our whole nation, didn't it? Kind of a darkness that fell on us that day. You remember the horror that you, as you watched these two hijacked airplanes by Islamic terrorists crashing into the World Trade Center, seeing those in flames, and then a couple hours later, you watch those two huge buildings just collapse into a pile of dust. You remember the horror of seeing the Pentagon on fire from another plane crash, the horror of seeing a, a crater in, in the middle of a field in eastern Pennsylvania where another plane who, that was hijacked that got crashed. You just remember that feeling of we're under attack. Think about that day and how much of our lives have been changed by that one day. Just 21 years later, like the Department of Homeland Security did not exist before 9-11. You know that. And since then, we've spent more than a trillion dollars trying to be safe or secure. Do you remember the good old days before 9-11 when you could get on an airplane without being strip searched? Good times, right? Like if your flight took off at 5, you showed up at 4.30... You needed to give yourself a little bit of time. Now it's like, how long is the security line going to be? You're always thinking that question. Or, or not to mention the way that fear has kind of gripped our collective conscience as a nation. Have you noticed that? That we've become, as a nation, obsessed with security and safety. Have you noticed that? That hasn't always been. That's only been since 9-11. My point is simply one day that changed everything. And Mark wants us to know that the coming of Jesus is the day that has changed everything for everyone. How do we know that? That's verse 1. Look at how Mark starts the first five words of this whole book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. There's two key words in there, beginning and and gospel. The word beginning, the word beginning is meant to take us right back to Genesis 1-1. Remember how the Bible starts? In the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. Now here we are in Mark 1-1, and he's telling us that the coming of Jesus is the beginning. It's another beginning. Only this beginning is different from the first beginning, because in the first beginning, God created everything ex nihilo, that's the Latin, out of nothing. This beginning is different because in this beginning, God is coming into this mess that we've created in life. This mess created by our sin, our anger, our bitterness, our, our immorality, our division, our hatred, our injustice. Like, like all of this, this, this cesspool that kind of humanity has made on earth, right? God has come into this and he is launching a new beginning. The coming of Jesus is a beginning. I wonder what he's creating. He says, well, 
Gospel. It's a gospel. That's the second key word. The word gospel means literally good news, but specifically it means good news that changes everything. That's really what it means. And when Mark used it, his first audience have felt very awkward by the use of the word. Because you see, the word gospel was used in Rome and in Roman culture in the first century. It was used in reference to basically anything really big that happened, a big victory over, you know, a big battle victory. But specifically, they used it in reference to the birth of a new emperor. We have record of it being used for the birth of Octavian, Caesar Augustus. And of course, that would make sense because you see, they believed, well, the primary religion of the day was the Roman imperial cult. So they believed that the emperors, the Caesars, came from the gods. So if the gods have sent us a new emperor, obviously that's good news that changes everything for the Roman Empire. Makes sense? That's how the word gets used. Now here's Mark saying, look what he's saying. Okay, here's the beginning. The gospel of who? Jesus. Not only that, but he's Jesus the Messiah. So he's the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And he's son of God. You don't think that was an absolute threat? Like, like Mark is doing a throwdown challenge to the Roman imperial establishment. You think your emperor's hot stuff? <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. Here's Jesus. That would have made his first audience very awkward because obviously the emperor's don't like being challenged. So obviously his audience is now suddenly a little nervous about even being caught reading such a thing. Right? Now you say, now why would Mark, who is Mark, and why would Mark start his book by picking a fight? Well, great question. Mark is also known as John Mark in the Bible. He carries both those names. And John Mark, Mark, was a boy during the ministry of Jesus. So he was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not. However, he was definitely in the crowds that followed Jesus' ministry. So Mark was a witness to the ministry, the miracles, the teachings of Jesus. But he witnessed it as a boy. So can you, can you respect, can you understand that? That like, as a boy, he would have a different perspective on the ministry of Jesus than, than an adult person would, see? But that's, this is Mark's experience of Jesus. He experienced Jesus as a boy. He was there. Now, Mark, as he gets older, young man, older teenager, maybe early 20s, Mark joins his uncle Barnabas and the apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. And Mark becomes the reason why Paul and Barnabas split up. Mark bailed early. Barnabas wanted to invite him back. Paul says, no way. They had a big fight. They split up. So way to go, Mark. <laughs> you split up the first gospel dream team. Quite a beginning. Mark overcomes this auspicious beginning and actually becomes prominent in the early church. And at some point in his later adulthood, Mark makes his way to Rome, where he comes into contact with the apostle Peter, who was ministering and working there in that city. And it's there that Mark begins to develop a burden, a heart for the Roman people. 
Now, it's the year 62 AD, so it's about 30 or so years after the death, resurrection of Jesus. Figure if you do the timeline, Jesus probably died sometime around 33 AD, right? So 30 or so years later, that's enough time for conspiracy theories to develop, for all kinds of janky ideas to develop about who Jesus was. And so Mark says, we have got to put down a solid testimony about Jesus. These people need to know the truth about who Jesus was. And so Mark interviews the apostle Peter to get his perspective, because Peter was an insider, one of the 12 disciples. And what we have in the Gospel of Mark is you have Mark's writing heavily influenced by Peter. So in a sense, you could almost say this book was written by both those guys, although Mark's the one that actually put pen to paper, so to speak. And he's writing this, and it also explains why he begins the way that he does, why he does not have a story about Christmas he doesn't have the shepherds, the sheep, the wise men, the angels, the, the stable. He doesn't have that. He also does not have Jesus' Hebraic genealogy, like doesn't tell you that Jesus came from Abraham. And matter of fact, he doesn't even tell you that Jesus was a Jew. Because if you think about it, the Romans hated the Jews. So that would almost be a detriment. And it's not that Mark is hiding that. Mark is just communicating to his audience. He knows his audience. And he knows his audience is not going to appreciate Jesus' Jewishness, so why go there? Instead, he starts his book with this bombastic statement. It's kind of a headline, and that's what headlines do, don't they? Headlines, I mean, you're scrolling through your phone, or you're reading the newspaper. You notice there's no headline that says, it was a nice day and everybody got along. Like, that doesn't get anybody's attention. You just pass right by that. No, it's always, it's the end of the world. It's some kind of thing like that that grabs your attention. That's what Mark 1-1 is. Now, if you're a Roman, you're reading this, you're listening to it being read for the first time. What's your reaction to a statement like that? After you're awkward, after you're a little nervous, after you're thinking, whoa, Mark, you're saying what I think you're saying? You're challenging the emperor. Your next response is, you better prove it, pal. And Mark says, I will. Verse 2. Verse 2 is, I'm going to give you a prophecy from Isaiah. 600 years before Jesus ever came, Isaiah prophesied that his herald would come. And he says this, I'll send my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare the way. Now, that doesn't mean as much to you and me, but let's think about this for a second. In the Roman Empire, heralds were the ones who spread the news about any of the big events that took place. So at the birth of a new emperor, you dispatch heralds around the empire to go spread the gospel about the birth of this new emperor. See? There's no prophetic messages about those heralds. Why? Because nobody knew the emperor was going to be born. When the emperor is born, that's when we find out, oh, a new emperor has been born. Let's get the heralds out. See what Mark's saying about Jesus? Hey, we are, everybody knew he was coming, so much so that there were, that not only does he have a herald, but his herald has a prophecy about him. That makes Jesus way better than the emperor. You can see that, right? 
See, and you can appreciate the value of that, right? That, that, that you would need a herald. I mean, you and I, we live in the technology age, so I can, I can post something and it goes global in a matter of seconds. Back then, it did not work that way. Literally, it would take months, maybe years for a message to get to the outer edges of the Roman Empire. And so that was the job of these heralds. But you don't have any prophecies about these heralds speaking about the emperor's birth. And yet, John, there is a prophecy about him. And his, so his herald is John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes, and he's in the wilderness, and he's baptizing. And John's baptism is a picture of the exodus. You know the exodus story in the Bible? The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and they're rescued by Moses. Now, they come out of Egypt. Are they a free people yet? Not really, because they had this thing called the Red Sea that's sort of in the way. And as they're at the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is coming against them, coming after them. So then they find themselves trapped. So they're technically not free, are they? Until God parts the waters, and then they, go, they come through the water. On the other side, they look back. God wipes out the Egyptian army. Now they are a free people. And this is the picture of John's baptism. This is what his baptism is depicting. You go in a slave and you come out free. You go in a slave to sin and you come out of the water free from sin. It's a baptism of repentance. They're confessing their sins. They're being forgiven of their sins. They come in as sinners. They go out free men and women. And John is depicting that. But John says, this is my baptism. But Jesus, the one coming after me, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Which makes you wonder, who is this Jesus? And how is it that he is able to bring the presence of God to such a degree that average men and women could be baptized in him? Like you would be baptized in water, you know, in, right, out. How is it that Jesus, this man, could bring the presence of God so much that a man or a woman could find themselves immersed in the presence of God. Who is this Jesus? Not only that, but John says, Jesus is so great, the one coming after me, so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Okay, now, at this point, John the Baptist had already become relatively well-known. This is about 30, 35 years after after John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' ministry. And by this time, John the Baptist was fairly well-known, and people thought of him the way that you and I think of him. We, we revere John the Baptist, do we not? He is a big figure in our faith. We, we know he's not the Savior, but we certainly recognize him as a great man of God. And that's how they saw him as well. So when John says, I am not worthy to untie his shoes, that's a very loud statement. Not only that, in the Roman world, they had a very strict hierarchy in their society. You have the emperor, he's at the top. You have the emperor's family, they're up there. Then you have the political class, they're up there. The rich people, they're up there. You have everybody else. And at the bottom of society's ladder, you have slaves. But even in the slave world, there was a hierarchy. And the lowest of the slaves was the shoe slave, the one that untie the shoes, wash the feet of the master. That was the bottom, bottom of the rung, right? And John, 
Hear what he's saying? John is saying this Jesus is so unbelievably great that I am not even worthy to be the shoe slave for him. In fact, if John's not worthy, then is anybody worthy? And the answer is no. The message is, here is Jesus. He's so great, there's not another human being on the planet who qualifies to be his shoe slave. And it's another slam against the emperor. Because guess what? The emperor had shoe slaves. Which makes sense. The emperor is just a man at the end of the day, isn't he? He's just a guy with a really important position, but he's still just a guy. And Mark is saying, Jesus, he is so great. The distance between him and between us is so great. There's not a one among us who's even qualified to be his shoe slave. And this is what Mark does all throughout the book. We will see this over and over and over again. He, kind, he, he drops these bombs on us, and he leaves you with this question like, well, then who is he? Who is this Jesus? That's the question that he leaves you with. If, if, if not even John the Baptist can be his shoe slave, if, if J Jesus had a herald and his herald was prophesied about, Right? Like, who gives a prophecy about the mailman, right? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, 600 years from now, there's a mailman. He's going to come. He's going to deliver a letter. It's going to be great. You know, the, I mean, no, no offense to postal workers, but not exactly the, you know, not exactly making history. You know what I mean? So Jesus is so great that his herald has a prophecy about him, and he made history. Who is this Jesus? And Mark does not leave us to wonder very long before he absolutely brings out the baseball bat and just chops us off at the knees and leaves us stunned about this Jesus. Look at verse 9. So after telling us that Jesus is this so great, this figure who's so great, Mark says, Jesus came to John and he said, would you baptize me? Do you catch that? If you're a Roman listening to that, you're going to be flabbergasted. See, we all know leaders who use their power to gain more power and to make themselves more rich. Is this not our experience of leaders in the human world? I mean, we don't have to name names. There's a bunch of them that we can point to, can't we? It's not even, right? So, so this is what we are accustomed to. And this is what the history of our world is filled with, is it not? People just like the Caesar, people just like them, who gain a position of power and use it to make themselves more powerful, use it to make themselves more secure, more rich, more famous, more, 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 and they don't really care how much it costs everybody else. This is what we're used to. And so Mark sets us up with these first eight verses, and you think, Jesus is a really powerful leader, is he not? All right, yes, verse 9 tells you he's a leader unlike anyone that you have ever experienced. Because as great as he is, Jesus humbles himself 
And he comes to this John and he goes, would you baptize me? Do you see the power of that? You see, Jesus is greater than you can ever imagine. He's also less than you can ever imagine. He's the beginning and he's the end. And he's the top and he's the bottom. Which means there's no place that you could go where you can escape his ability to find you and reach you and rescue you. Jesus is a leader unlike anyone that you have ever encountered because he uses all of his power to benefit you. He doesn't use his power to benefit himself. What does Jesus get out of this? Think about it. He gets, what does he get out of this? But more grief and heartache. Like, wouldn't it just be easier for Jesus if he just fried us all and was done with this? Like, wouldn't that be the easier way to go? And yet it's not, is it? Jesus takes his power and he puts it all to bear on rescuing you and me. And Mark says, this is the gospel. This here is good news that changes everything about your life. Think about it this way. The fact that God exists is not really the gospel. The fact that God exists is not good news that changes everything. Nearly everybody believes that God exists. And look at the mess we're in. You know, we have all kinds of wacky ideas about God. People have all kinds of bad ideas, right? but it doesn't change anything about the way they live. We're still continuing to mess things up like we always have been with the full knowledge that God exists. That's not the gospel. But the fact that God exists and that he has taken all of his power and he has funneled it and focused it in this one effort to come to you and to me and to rescue us and to create a new life for us, that's good news that changes everything. God uses his power for me? Yes. God uses his power for you? Yes. The gospel. Now, the second concept here that Mark is telling us about is that Jesus' coming is not just a gospel, but it is also a new beginning. And this is what he... This is what he explains in verses 9 through 15. In verses 9 through 15, it's the baptism of Jesus. But to understand it, we need to go back a little bit and remember the creation story from Genesis 1 and 2. Can you remember with me some of those elements from the creation story? We've got, back in Genesis chapter 1, you've got water. And you have the Holy Spirit, and he's hovering over the surface of the deep. Is that ringing any bells? In Genesis 1, 1, Holy Spirit's hovering over the surface of the water, the Spirit. You have God's voice speaking, don't we? God says, let there be, and there was. And then you also have God's voice expressing pleasure, don't we? At the end of every day, what does God say? That is good. And then, what do we have God saying when he creates man? He says, that is very good. So God's expressing his pleasure at the creation of man, is he not? And then we have a man. So we have Adam. That's part of the creation story. But then we also have temptation. Adam gets tempted. And how does he do with the temptation? He fails. And when he fails in sin, giving into the temptation, a division is created between heaven and earth, isn't it? Is there not a schism, a brokenness in our relationship with God? Okay, now you take that 
to Mark chapter 1. And let's, we're going to see the same elements, but with a surprising twist at the end. You have water, the water of baptism. You have the Holy Spirit hovering over Jesus. You have a man, Jesus, in the water. We have the voice of God speaking, this is my son. And you have the voice of God expressing pleasure. With him, I am well pleased. I love my son. We also have temptation. Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted. But you notice there's something missing? What's missing? There's no fall. Yeah, sin is missing. That's right. There is no fall. And as a result, how does Mark wrap it up? He says the wild animals are there and the angels are attending to Jesus. So you have the wild animals of earth. You have the angels of heaven. So because Jesus endures temptation and does not fall, Jesus brings unity again. He restores the schism between heaven and earth. Jesus is the center. When we sing he's the center of it all, he is the center of it all. Jesus restored it. Like this, the first thing he healed in his ministry, the first thing he healed was the brokenness between heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing? In fact, it's so amazing that in order for us to even believe it, we have to change the way we think. And this is verse 15. Verse 15 is, is a summary, if you will, of Jesus' teaching on earth. That's what Mark gives us. It's just a summary statement where Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, so he's, he's establishing a new kingdom, which again, that's a challenge to the Roman bourgeoisie because they don't want a new kingdom, but Jesus has brought it anyway. So he's establishing a new kingdom, and in order for you to receive it, you need to repent and believe the gospel. You notice how he be Mark begins with the gospel and he ends his section with the gospel. You see that? In verse 1, it's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And then verse 15, Jesus' sermon, repent and believe the gospel. So Mark has spent these first 15 verses explaining how this gospel is an entirely new beginning for you and me. And then he ends it with this little, little message that says, in order for you to receive it, you need to repent. Repent and believe the gospel. The word repent, it means, it's the word metanoia in Greek. And it literally means to change the way you think. We, we, we misunderstand it because we've attached it. When we hear the word, we think sweaty preacher with floppy Bible pointing his finger at me, telling me to repent. And, and that's not really what the word means. The word means simply change the way you think. Because if you change the way you think, you will change the way you behave. So much of our behavior is linked to the way we think. Bad thinking leads to bad behavior. Um, let me just give you an example. You know, Karis and I have been married for a long time. And uh, like, like any married couple, we have our funks. Any married couple have any funks? Any, any, you, don't ever, no, you never go into a funk. No, okay. Well, then I guess you can send us to counseling. Then we'll take that because we're the only ones that have a funk. But every once in a while, we get in these funks as a couple. And it'll go something like this. I'll think she's mad at me for some reason. And so I pull away and I kind of, now I'm cold, I'm a little icy towards her because I think she's mad at me. But that makes her think that I'm mad at her. 
So she pulls away and gets a little icy. And now we're both icy with each other. And we're in the funk. This is the funk. And, and it lasts until one of us calls the timeout, blows the whistle, and we're like, okay, wait a second, what's going on here? Well, I thought you were mad at me. I'm not mad at you. I thought you were mad at me. Well, I'm not mad at you. And we discover we actually weren't mad at each other, and here we've had this funk the whole time. Anybody been there? Please tell, tell us we're not the only ones. Okay, thank you. Right? See? So here's the deal. Where does it start? Bad thinking. There really wasn't anything wrong to begin with. It all started in our minds. It's crazy. How much our thinking impacts our behavior. And Jesus is saying this, that if, that if you are going to receive the gospel, if you're going to receive this news here, that God has come with all of his power and he's using it to rescue you and to benefit you, if you're going to receive this, you need to change the way you think. Because Jesus is different than anything else you've ever tried before to fix your problems. Amen. Do you recognize that? That Jesus is totally different than anything you've ever tried before. And so Jesus says, in order for you to even begin the process of enjoying the changes that come with this, you need to change the way you think. So repent, he says, and believe the good news. They go in that order on purpose. It's not believe and then repent. It's repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Now, there's another key word in here that I want to close with, and it's the word wilderness. You notice where all of the action happens in this chapter? It all happens in the wilderness. Uh, where does John the Baptist go? Where is he preaching? In the wilderness. And where does Jesus go to get baptized? In the wilderness. And when Jesus is tempted, where is he driven? In the wilderness. And so where, does Jesus, where is Jesus victorious over temptation? The wilderness, is he not? It all happens in the wilderness. It's the backdrop for this whole thing. It's an important word. Because it's where you and I find ourselves, don't we? The wilderness is where God meets us. It's where God finds all of us. You're going, I mean, think about your testimony. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if we could take the time and every one of us just share our testimonies of how we came to know Christ, it's every one of us would have a wilderness story in our testimony. It's like, yeah, well, I, you know, I, was, I went through a really tough time and everything fell apart and that's when I started to think about God and I cried out and there he was. And isn't that basically every one of our testimonies? In some form or another? Exactly. You see, if you're in a wilderness today, I want you to hear this word. You're close to God. Because God comes to the wilderness to find you. Your wilderness doesn't scare him off. God comes to the wilderness. That's where he finds us. And God takes all of his power. This is the gospel. He takes all of his power. And he focuses it on finding you in your wilderness to rescue you out. This is the God that we worship. This is the Jesus that Mark is showing us right here in the first 15 verses. That Jesus has stepped into our wilderness. That's where we are. And he's here to rescue us. And he's here to lead us out. And even today, if you're in a wilderness, you know, maybe your marriage is... 
Maybe you're in a funk. That's a wilderness, isn't it? God is there. Maybe your kids are far from the Lord or you have a burden for your children. There's something going on. There's trouble with your kids. That's a wilderness, isn't it? God will find you there. Maybe it's a health crisis, some serious thing happening. It's scaring you. You're knocking on death's door. You, you feel it. The shadow, the valley of the shadow of death is like over you. That's a wilderness, isn't it? God will find you there. See, the wilderness is where God finds you. So if you're in a wilderness today, I just want you to hear the good news. You're close to God. He's close to the brokenhearted. You can call out to him, reach out to him. He's here for you. And he's using all of his power for you in this will, in this time. He's here for you. Amen? Amen. You hear that? That's the Jesus that we worship. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he, isn't he stunning? I love Jesus. I'll say this. Um, one of the most common ways that people responded to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is fear. Jesus uh, stops the storm in the boat, and the disciples are afraid. Jesus healed the Gadarene demoniac, and the whole town is afraid, and they tell Jesus to go away. Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood, and he turns around, and she's afraid. Like fear, like four or five times. It's the most common way that people responded to Jesus. And one of the things that I realized in my study of Mark was, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't fear him. I think that I've grown too familiar with Jesus, you know? Like, he's my friend, and I love him, and I know he loves me, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that is awesome. I just, I just don't want to be so familiar with him that I forget that he is God, almighty, awesome God. And he's, and he's actually put all of his power to use in helping me. And that's such good news. And I want you to hear that today. He's done the same for you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.com dot org.